Welcome to Doing the Work, the frontline stories of social change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Doing the Work. Before I get into the introduction with the guest for this episode's interview, I just wanted to take some time to, you know, kind of reflect on the last year and really give some thanks to a number of people who have really been supportive of the podcast. So, you know, this was started last March and I started out doing two episodes a month. And then I switched to one a month because it was just a little too much for me. So I've been staying strong at one a month and we just completed 12. It's really been an amazing experience getting to know a lot of the guests who have come on to connect with people through the podcast about the wonderful work that's happening to see the responses and a lot of the inspiration, whether it's a student who's interested in the different aspects of social work and didn't realize that the, t- the types of roles that are out there or an educator who wants to use an episode to teach about a topic or someone who's doing work in the community and hears the episode and feels supported knowing that there are others out there, you know, going through similar struggles or someone who's kind of outside of this field in general, outside, maybe they're interested in social change, that term, and that brought them in, and now they're learning some new things. So really happy the way things are going and just kind of want to, you know, number one, thank all my guests who have come on, just amazing people who have given their time to come on the podcast and share their experiences. Want to thank my family because this is definitely a time-consuming endeavor, (laughs) and they've all been very supportive with uh, me telling everyone there needs to be, you know, silence in the house to record, things like that. My work that's been very supportive, my colleagues who have given excellent feedback to me, colleagues nationally uh, who have really taken the time, some of the old school social work podcasts, you know who you are, that have really given me feedback and helped me out. Also, my students who teach me new things every day, give me ideas of information for topics that really should be put into episodes that need to get covered in episodes. And of course, thank you so much to all the listeners who have subscribed, who have shared episodes, who have tweeted, retweeted, posted, provided feedback on on iTunes, given reviews. You know, I couldn't do this without everyone I just mentioned Some not specifically by name, of course, but just so many people that make this happen. And I just want to say thank you all so much. And I'm really excited for what 2019 is going to bring. Again, please reach out if you have ideas. And then also, you know, please know that you can subscribe. So there's different ways to subscribe to podcasts. There's a number of links in the show notes for ways to subscribe. Please leave positive reviews on iTunes. That actually helps get the podcast out to other potential listeners so we can really spread this message of people doing work on the front lines that don't get talked about. They're not the ones, they're the ones doing the hard work day in and day out, but their stories are often not shared. And that's why I started this podcast to really get those stories out there and highlight these people who do hard work every day to help others and really make things better. And especially right now, we need it more than ever. So again, thank you everyone. And I hope you enjoy this episode and the episodes we have for this year. In this episode, I talk with Valerie Barron, who, along with her sister, Risa Barron, 
is the co-founder and director of operations for Health Information Project, Inc., known as HIP, a Miami, Florida-based organization delivering a peer-to-peer model of health education in high schools. We discussed the importance and effectiveness of HIP's model and how they were able to partner with the public school district as well as independent private schools to have HIP in 58 high schools in Miami-Dade County, serving 34,000 ninth graders during this school year alone. Valerie shares how she and her sister created HIP out of a mix of their own personal and professional experiences. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hey, Val, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking with me about your work with the Health Information Project. And just to get things started, could you give a brief overview of what HIP does? Absolutely. And thanks again for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, So Health Information Project, known simply as HIP, by everyone out there. Uh, We're a nonprofit organization based in Miami, Florida. Uh, We work with the fourth largest school district in the country. Um, We are a program that empowers high school students to tackle the health crises of their generation. How do we do that? We do that by training 11th and 12th graders at the high schools to become peer health educators. And they then go into the ninth grade classes to teach a comprehensive health curriculum. We just finished our ninth year, so we're coming up on our 10-year anniversary. Uh, We work with 54 public high schools in Miami-Dade County. That's all of the Miami-Dade County public high schools here, as well as two private independent high schools. We just finished in this year working with, this year alone, 33,000 ninth graders receiving the program. And we have over 1,600 peer health educators teaching, as well as connecting 120,000 uh, students to health resources, both locally and nationally. So um, it's been really cool to see the program where we started um, in two schools, and it was founded by my sister and me, and see it now just finishing our ninth year in 56 high schools. It's amazing. And those are some serious numbers. You're having a huge impact, which is why I wanted to get you on here for people not in Miami. Just when you drive around Miami and you go past any school, there's a sign basically like on a fence that says be hip. And so the presence is felt all around town. And that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about is how did you actually get into all those schools? Because, you know, there's going to be people listening to this podcast that have great ideas in their own communities and are probably looking for ways to replicate what they're doing on a larger scale, um, doing something similar. And just your effectiveness about getting into that many schools and having that impact is really interesting. So could you talk about that? Absolutely. Um, So, you know, what we knew from the beginning was that we wanted to create a program that was embedded within the schools. Um, We didn't want to be, you know, outsiders coming in, presenting and leaving. We wanted to, you know, grow our organization organically with the support and, and with, you know, the ideas and feedback from the students and faculty and administrators at our schools. So it's really a program that's been created by our Miami schools that we partner with. And, um, you know, we, our, our thinking was, you know, a lot of times there are complex issues out there that maybe have simple solutions. And we look at HIP as an innovative but very practical and simple solution that doesn't cost millions and millions of dollars. So we knew that we needed to get the buy-in from the community, that we didn't want to throw something at them, impose something at them. We wanted them to buy into what we were doing. And so we grew organically. Um, In the first year, we 
partnered with, you know, the two principals at two high schools and got the buy-in from the faculty and the students. And it grew from there from really word of mouth. Um, It's nothing that's mandated by anyone. Principals invite us back every year. And we always talk about, I read in, in, um, I think it was the New Yorker magazine um, a few years ago where Cory Booker and Mark Zuckerberg partnered in the um, Newark schools. And obviously, Mark Zuckerberg has a lot of money and Cory Booker has a lot of star power. And, And what they realized was it didn't matter how much money and how much star power they had, they didn't get the buy-in from the community. So the things that they wanted to do in the schools didn't work. And they ended up pulling everything out because they didn't get the community on board. And that's what we believed we needed to do from the beginning was get the buy-in and embed ourselves within the schools. Yeah, the buy-in is so critical. Um, And when people think of stakeholders, you know, sometimes they forget that actually the youth are a major stakeholder because if they don't want to participate, it's not going to go anywhere. Where did you get the idea for the peer-to-peer model? You know, it's interesting. We we didn't invent the peer-to-peer model. It's been used and documented um, and researched that it's something that works. And so we, you know, everyone I talk to, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners out there think the same way, is everyone got probably some type of the traditional health model, um, where it was kind of an older teacher, scare tactics, cheesy videos, old textbooks, and didn't really feel like, you know, anyone learned real practical information that they could use that had to do with their health. So, you know, we saw that, you know, who do kids want to listen to? Even if their parent has an MD or an MPH, is a nurse practitioner, they don't want to listen to their parents because their parents don't know what they're going through and they're not experiencing the same things they are and they're older and they're their parents. Who do kids listen to? Listen to their peers. So let's arm their peers. Let's arm your friend's older brother with science-based health information presented in a way that's practical, that they, you know, show that they have the buy-in and, you know, what's cooler than a 11th or 12th grader coming into your ninth grade class and talking to you about, you know, serious health topics that, you know, you feel like you're having a conversation with them. And a lot of ninth graders are freaked out starting high school. And this is also a great way for them to feel like, hey, someone older is looking out for me and is there for me. Yeah, absolutely. And what are some of the actual issues that you're seeing high school students really face right now? Our program, like I said earlier, is comprehensive. So everything from mental health, nutrition, drugs, relationships, reproductive health, how to be healthy. Um, What we were seeing in the data that we collected since year one, as well as, you know, national data is that, you know, kids are dealing with a lot of things. And maybe, you know, with social media, it's magnified even more than it was when, you know, people like us were growing up. We're seeing a lot of anxiety, depression, attempted suicide, a lot of abuse. Um, We feel that mental health is really the umbrella to all of the other things that we're talking about. And, you know, we just feel like kids a lot of times just aren't given the information, but when they are, they're sponges. And a lot of what we're finding is that these kids are then taking the information and passing it along to their family members, you know, making sure that, you know, mom doesn't fry the pork because we all have type two diabetes and we're all overweight and, and helping the family be more 
focused on prevention and making sure that everyone in the family is healthy. So we feel like the kids, you know, there are future adults in our community and they're the ones that a lot of them are taking care of their families and passing along this health information to them to make sure that everyone is healthy. How do you select who the peer educators are going to be? That's a great question. One thing, you know, that we're big believers in is you, in order to have the right peer health educators, you need to have a cross section of the kids at the schools so that every ninth grader who's sitting through the class can relate to one of the peer health educators that they're receiving the HIP program from. So what they do is in their 10th grade year that the students apply to be peer health educators. They fill out an application. They have to be nominated by a faculty member at the school, and then they go in for interviews. Um, you know, I was thinking back to high school, like when, when else would I have gotten to go through an interview process? And the interviews are led by the peer health educators who are already in the program and the faculty sponsor. So it's really a peer-led, peer-run program. Um, and, you know, we, our big thing is a lot of times kids might not be the most natural presenters. They might be the shy kid or the kid that doesn't really have anything at school that they're really attached to or really invested in. And we want to invest in those kids so that, you know, by the end of their HIP training, they are, you know, natural, comfortable public speakers where their personalities, you know, they really come out of their shell. So it's cool to see that shy kid then blossom into an unbelievable peer health educator. And they learn everything from public speaking, classroom management, curriculum knowledge skills, as well as leadership skills. So I think we originally looked at the program as, oh, it's a delivery service of information to ninth graders, which is what we're doing. But it's also giving the peer health educators so much because they can then use these tools and feel empowered in whatever it is that they do in the future, both going off to college and in their professional careers, they then have this hip training that they wouldn't have had before. You know, when you're talking about the cross section, and then you were also talking about how the youth, you know, bring it home, the information home to their families. I was really thinking, you know, Miami is an incredibly diverse, culturally diverse city. You're in 54 schools. There's some of those schools, what the issues the youth and those the students are facing is very different depending on what part of town they're in. How do you ensure, you know, that the curriculum is culturally relevant to all of those students and Absolutely. their family? So, you know, we see um, that, you know, while, you know, this school might be, you know, high performing school, this school might be a lower performing school, um, you know, kids are going to deal with all these health issues and they're going to have family members or friends. So it's kind of like health in some ways is also the great equalizer and that it's something that everyone can relate to. But, you know, we are making sure that these kids are having conversations about culture, about religion, about what their families feel and believe so that they feel comfortable talking about these things. And then we're saying, hey, we're not saying that what you grew up in or what you learned is wrong. Here's science. Here, here are the tools and the information so that you can then make healthier decisions, you know, with regards to the things you're going through. And, you know, at our independent private schools or some of our public schools, the drug issues might be different types of drugs, but at the same time, they're all dealing with drug issues. You know, obviously there might be gun violence in a certain community and that school might talk more about that when it comes to mental health and grief. You might have more students that have lost you know, siblings or parents to gun violence that might not occur in another school, in another neighborhood, another demographic. So we are always very cognizant of the fact that, you know, your curriculum has to be culturally sensitive and bring and weave in all of these things that all the students are going through in their, you know, different neighborhoods and different lives. 
What kind of feedback do you get from students, who, the ninth graders who receive the presentation? Like, what are the kind of things that they talk about to the peer educators and also to just to you all? And I guess if you have like some surveys or however you collect that. I think what we see a lot of is a lot of times, you know, these conversations kind of set the light bulb off in some of these kids' heads where they didn't realize that what they were going through wasn't okay or that they, you know, could do something about it, that they could go talk to a psychologist about something that they were going through or that, you know, they could help their family members get insurance. Um, So I think, you know, a lot of times it's kind of these these simple conversations about these topics that allow them to realize, hey, I can do something about what I'm going through and I can get help. But I think the, the big thing that we're seeing is these kids realize, hey, I'm not alone with what I'm going through, that there are other kids in my classroom that are going through some of the same things I'm going through. So I think it helps kids kind of be more sensitive, but also realize that like, they're not the only ones, they're not alone in what they're going through. And I think because the peer health educators set the tone for, hey, we're here to help you. A lot of kids come up to them and they've been trained to then, you know, get them connected to the right resource, whether it's the faculty sponsor at the school or the guidance counselor. If there's a clinic at the school, we want to make sure that they're connected to the right resource. And a a couple of our principals have said, you know, one recently said, you know, the peer health educators are almost like CIA operatives. We don't have enough people to support these kids and to make sure that they're okay. But the peer health educators are there and they're that support system to make sure that these kids are emotionally and physically well. So, you know, a lot of the feedback is, is, is things that we wouldn't think of as being such a huge thing that we're doing or that we're giving them, but it could change the life of a kid just by having this conversation about something that they had never thought it was okay to talk about. Yeah. I mean, stigma is a huge Absolutely. issue with all of these, but especially with mental health and the normalizing that like, Hey, I'm not the only one going through this, or it's not something that's wrong with me or my family. Right, exactly. Such a huge message for them. So what is the linkage to services? You know, how does that happen? Cause they're getting this presentation, these light bulbs are going off. Right. And then what's the next step? So, you know, the ideal situation is for our schools to have school-based health clinics. Um, Unfortunately, in Miami, you know, we don't have too many of those. We have some that some of our hospital systems and universities have provided. So the ideal situation is for us to be able to drive the traffic to those resources that are on a school campus. However, Number one, if a school doesn't have a clinic or that health professional or resource on their campus, or if a kid is dealing with something while they're not at school, or if it's for a family member or a friend, we want to make sure they know where to go. So what we do on our website is we connect them to resources. How do we do that? We build out a site specifically for every school we partner with, where we've mapped out all of the health clinics, outpatient centers, hospitals, federally qualified health clinics, in those resources in the neighborhood around the school. So they know whether they need parental consent, how to get there, whether they need insurance, whether it's free sliding scale. We've essentially put everything, all those reliable resources in the neighborhood around their school on our website. The other component on our website is based on the hip health topics that are taught in the classroom. If I'm a kid who is struggling with coming out of the closet and I want to talk to someone anonymously, we have the hotlines and websites and resources based on topic, 
both locally and nationally resources. What we're seeing is, you know, there are so many amazing resources in our community, but a lot of people just don't know about them. And so we want to be the connector between not just providing the education, but also connecting them to the resources. And that's how we do that. You know, your program and approach is very social work, very social worky and public health, Uh (laughs) such a like a social work, public health model is how I really see it. But that's also not your background. So how did this come about? Like, where did these influences come from? Yeah, that's a great question. So so kind of twofold. Number one, um, my sister and I dealt with a lot of health issues growing up. Not that would have necessarily been solved by having hip in our lives if hip existed when we were in high school. But what we realized was, you know, you can have the financial resources, you can have a supportive family, and it's still really hard when you're dealing with health things, whether it is, you know, being able to travel the country to find the right doctor for something autoimmune related. You know, it's still really difficult, even if you have all of that support and that system in place. So it helped us kind of realize like, wow, it's really hard for us. Imagine what it's like for kids and even adults going through these things and not having any of that support. So I kind of think we look at HIP as like, it's the thing that provides the system and the support for those kids that don't have it. And at the same time, my sister was in law school at the University of Miami, and she um, was part of a program that actually came um, out of Georgetown called Street Law. And so they went into the Miami-Dade County Public High Schools to teach law concepts in a practical, interactive, fun way. And her thinking was, hey, we can do this with the law and teach about things like Brown v. Board of Education, why can't we do something accessible like this for health? And that's kind of how HIP kind of came into being. What we originally thought was, we're going to find a program somewhere else, and we're just going to bring it to Miami. Often, Miami is kind of a forgotten city in a lot of ways. I think people are scared of Miami, scared to tackle Miami, but also a lot of these national nonprofits that have been around for 20, 25 years are only recently coming to Miami and having a presence in Miami. So we just thought we weren't on the radar of some national organization, but we didn't see anything that was both comprehensive and embedded within the schools that wasn't relying on adults and outsiders to solve these problems, but was empowering the kids at the schools, the kids who walk the same hallways as the kids they're teaching to provide this comprehensive health education curriculum. And that's kind of how it all happened. I like to say we were reluctant entrepreneurs. You know, we didn't, we didn't think we were going to do it. We didn't anticipate doing this, but we kind of fell into it because we saw a need and we had a solution and we didn't see a solution out there. I think it's an amazing story. And I'm assuming it also evolves as different issues emerge, right? So not like this is not a new issue. It's, this is an issue that I'm going to mention that's been around but there's been a lot more publicity around it lately in the issue. That's the issue of consent, right? Absolutely. And I wanted to kind of talk with you a little bit about that and how HIP approaches that with students. Absolutely. So, you know, that's one of many topics that, you know, we think of as being, you know, in the news now, but it's really, these are things that have been around for a long time that, right. now, you know, people were maybe talking about it more under the radar. And now it's, you know, with the Me Too movement, it's more out, um, out there. And 
what's what's cool about the HIP model and the HIP program, unlike you know your traditional health model had a textbook that was printed that was there and probably the same textbook was there for 10 years, but science changes and things are changing. And so every year, and even sometimes in the middle of the year, we're inserting things as science changes or as new things are coming up and staying relevant. And it's an ever evolving textbook. So, you know, when, when clinicians in the community are telling us like, Hey, we're seeing a lot of this in our community and a lot of these things, then we know we need to focus more on that. Or if the data is showing something, the focus groups are saying one thing, then we need to make sure that we are giving these kids information that they need and that is relevant to them. Um, so, you know, consent is one of those things that is part of our curriculum that we want to make sure kids are talking about and they understand and they know what does consent mean? What is consent not? You know, and we feel like doing that in a way that, you know, they're seeing it, they're hearing it. And the curriculum is not just, it's not lectures, it's interactive. We have, you know, videos, we have scenarios, we have activities so that all the different types of learners in a school are, are getting hip in the way that they, they learn. And, you know, we want to make sure that it's in a way that they really can feel it and understand it and be empowered by being given this information in a way that they can digest. You know, I, I think you and I have talked about this before, but I got into social work before I even really knew I was in social work by volunteering, um, doing school presentations around consent. So I've found them, your model really interesting. I think that's kind of where we first got talking about all the work Mm -hmm. you're doing. And the other thing I'm wondering about is now with the new legislation in Florida, because of, um, you know, in in response to the Parkland shooting and more resources that are supposedly going to be coming to mental health and um, some different safety issues in schools, are you noticing? And, and these are high school students, right? So they know about me too, and they know about Parkland, and they know what's going on here in Miami too, in their own communities, right? There's also gun violence that's happening here like daily. Are some of these conversations like coming up even more? Yeah. So I think, you know, you bring up a good point, you know, with bringing in resources, putting more mental health professionals on a campus, all of those things are great. But what we found is you can't just plop down resources and expect kids to use them. And so one thing that's, you know, big about HIP is we want to explain to them what, you know, what does a social worker do? What does a primary care provider do? Who is the nurse at the clinic and where can I find her and what can she do? And, you know, you also have to eliminate the stigma and taboo that goes along with going to a clinic or going to talk to, you know, a psychologist or the guidance counselor. A lot of kids think, you know, your school counselor, your guidance counselor is just there to help you with, you know, your course selection or getting into college, but actually guidance counselors are, they do, you know, they guide you and they have, you know, a lot of them have the background to help you with the psychosocial things that are going on, but kids don't know that. So we feel like it's our job to send the educators in to explain how those resources work and why they should use them and eliminate the stigma associated with going to talk to these individuals. So, you know, in the first intro to hip session, explaining the resources is a big part of the program. You know, where can I find these people? What do they do? How do I get to them? You know, and with everything going on, you know, in the aftermath of Parkland, you know, I think what we've seen is that, you know, the kids from that school, the students are the ones who are leading the movement. And, 
we've already been seeing that for nine years in our Miami-Dade County schools, both the public and private schools. We're seeing these kids be empowered. And I think a lot of times, you know, Miami especially is at the bottom of a lot of the good lists and at the top of a lot of the bad lists for things. And, you know, we're told that, you know, we don't have you know, a lot of civic engagement here. But, you know, as someone who's working with these kids and in these schools, I feel the opposite. I see that these kids are doing things purely to help their peers and to give back to their communities. So, you know, with with all of these things that are going on, you know, we look at it as like, a lot of times the adults are the ones screwing things up and it's the kids that are the ones that are, you know, solving these issues and tackling these issues. So, you know, as a result of Parkland, yes, we're, you know, having maybe more conversations about certain things, but these are conversations that were already happening in our schools and with our kids. They were already talking about these things and and how to deal with them and, you know, how to help a kid that was socially isolated and make sure they get to the proper resource. You know, it's definitely brought it more to the forefront, but it's, these are conversations that were already happening. I think we're just hearing about them more. The adults are hearing about them, you know? Right. The students already... This was already, they were already discussing all these things, you know, it's just more in the media that when there's a major mass shooting, it, it amplifies everything. Um, Although some of the daily issues that are particularly happening in some of the communities here in Miami still aren't being discussed. We got to talk about these things. We have to talk about them. They, you know, maybe aren't sexy to talk about. Maybe, you know, they are taboo, but we have to have these conversations. These conversations are important because you know, the emotional and physical health of these kids is important. And if we continue to sweep things under the rug and ignore them, you know, we're doing a disservice to our, you know, the future of our community. So how can, you know, I, um, I'm going to put some links to HIP in the show notes. So listeners can go there um, to learn more about HIP and get in touch with you. How can people listening to the podcast support the work you're doing? Absolutely. So, you know, we right now are only in Miami, but we're, we're looking to um, grow our impact to other school districts and other cities. So, you know, just by you know, giving me the opportunity to talk about what we're doing um, here in Miami is, is amazing and huge for us. Um, you know, but we're always looking for partners um, in what, what we're doing to grow the organization, grow the program beyond Miami-Dade County and make sure that we're, you know, sustainable here and that, you know, we can, we can go to other places because we believe this is a national model and it's something that's easily replicable and doesn't cost millions and millions of dollars because, you know, we're using and utilizing the kids that are at the schools to, you know, to implement this program. So, you know, just giving me this opportunity to talk about it has been amazing. So I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you coming on here and I want to thank you for your time and thank you for doing the work in the community. Thank you. Thank you for what you do. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place.